Now, there are some people today, they call themselves supersessionists. They say the church has superseded Israel, that we're the new Israel. Popularly, it's called replacement theology. But Jesus was clear. His second coming cannot happen until the Jewish people say, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Jesus came in the name of Yahweh until they recognize that his second coming cannot take place. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Pastor Carl has been addressing biblical prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled in his series, God's Prophetic Schedule. Over the next three days, Dr. Brogy will be preaching from Matthew chapter 24, verses 23 through 31. Today's sermon is entitled, Christ's Return to Earth. Do you live with the expectation that Christ is coming back, coming to judge, and is your king? Matthew chapter 24, verse 23 says, Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. We know that times are bad during the seal judgments, but during the trumpet judgments, people will be desperately looking for answers. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he begins. Would you take God's word, please, this morning and turn to the gospel according to Matthew. If you are new to the Bible, it's easy to find. It's the very first book in the New Testament. And if you're joining us for the first time, typically we take entire books of the Bible and we go through chapter by chapter and verse by verse. But before we begin the next book that we're going to study, I'm doing a series called God's Prophetic Schedule. And if you're new to the Bible, even a casual reader of Scripture, you cannot miss the fact that a central theme in both the Old and the New Testaments is that the Messiah is not going to come once, but twice, that he's going to come again, that he will rule and reign. And at least 17 Old Testament books underscore this. In 21 times, in seven out of 10 chapters in the New Testament, underscore that Jesus is coming again. He is going to come again. He is going to rule and reign. He's going to fix up this messed up world that we live in. There's over 300 references alone in the New Testament to the return of Jesus from heaven. And that's not surprising because when he comes back, he's going to complete our salvation. Our salvation is not yet finished. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. We call that justification. We're being saved from the power of sin. The New Testament calls that sanctification. But some dear precious day, we'll be saved from the very presence of sin. That's glorification. It will happen when Jesus comes. And so the very nature and theme of prophecy is the Lord Jesus. And so the, Old, the New Testament concludes with a prayer, really, where John says, even so come, Lord Jesus. Now, when you think about the coming of Christ, not just his first coming, but his second coming, think of both in terms of a series of events. The first coming, obviously, was not a singular event. He left the glory and splendor of heaven, and the Spirit of God overshadowed Mary's womb, and he took on our humanity. He was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. He began his public ministry in Nazareth. He was soon run out, and so he made his headquarters, Capernaum. He ministered largely in the Galilee region during his three-plus years of ministry, ended up in Jerusalem where they slew him on a cross according to the preordained plan and foreknowledge of God. 
For this was written of the Messiah that he would die for us. He was buried, showing he was dead. He was raised, and then off the Mount of Olives, he ascended into heaven. That's all part of the first coming program. Well, when he comes a second time, the next event is he'll catch up the church. A seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation will begin to unfold. He will literally, visibly come back to the earth, and then he will rule and reign for a thousand years. So here's a, a picture of that. Uh, you can see between the rapture and the start of this seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation, there's a space of time. The Bible is clear that the Great Tribulation does not begin with the rapture of the church, but it begins with the covenant, the peace treaty of sorts that Daniel writes about in Daniel 9. And that will make the clock tick for seven years. This seven-year period, known as the time of Jacob's trouble, also called the Great Tribulation, by Christians today is divided into two halves and that middle slash represents an event known as the abomination of desolation. And as we'll be reminded this morning, it goes from a time of tribulation in the first three and a half years to great tribulation. But these are important events that we need to focus on. Listen to these words by C.S. Lewis. He said, a continued looking forward to the eternal world is not as some modern people think a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world were those, just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth only, and you will get neither. Now, he wrote that in 1960, when our culture, at least these United States and Great Britain where he lived, was still largely Christianized. I can't imagine what he would have thought of our day. And so 318 times in 260 chapters in the Old and the New Testaments, Christ's return from heaven is spoken of. Now, after the church is raptured and this seven-year period begins, there'll be a one-world leader. He's known by over 30 different titles in the Scripture. The most popular title is one that's used by John in 1 John, known as the Antichrist. He's largely called in the book of Revelation, the beast. And there are two beasts. He has a compatriot, as we'll be reminded of this morning, called the false prophet. And of course, the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, remember Daniel in Daniel, the ninth chapter, tells a prophecy that concerns 70 weeks. And unlike uh, us, where we simply have a week of days, as the Jews do, in addition, they had a week of years. And so when it spoke of a week, you needed to ask contextually, is it a week of days or a week of years? Well, clearly in Daniel 9, it's a week of years. And the final week would be, therefore, seven years long. And there's this event that happens right in the middle of this seven-year period that is a game changer. We studied it in verse 15. Let me read verse 15 to you from Matthew 24. Therefore, Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through the prophet through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now we've seen thus far, there are two aspects to this evil act known as the abomination of desolation. Again, once the peace treaty is signed, the seven-year period starts, and in the middle of this seven-year period, he goes into the temple and he makes himself out to be God. 
Paul describes it as well in 2 Thessalonians 2. We're speaking of the Antichrist. He says he's the one who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. Up until this time, he is allowed for a one-world system of religion with all of the religions bled together. And we're moving towards that. And you see the popes and Protestant liberals who are pushing for that even in our day. But in the middle of this seven-year period, he's going to push for exclusivity of worship. You worship him and no one else. He exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. This is known as the abomination of desolation. Now, Jesus went into the temple on a couple of different occasions, once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end of his ministry. He cleansed it. He referred to it as his father's house, making himself equal to God, and he claimed himself to be God. Why was that not an abomination of desolation? Because it was true of him. Well, if a Jew is perceptive theologically, then they're going to be thinking in terms of, wait a minute, Messiah, a baby will be born. The baby's name will be called Mighty God. Maybe indeed, yes, this one is God. So just going into the temple alone, calling himself God is not necessarily evil but for the fact it wasn't true of him. But there's a second event that happens with it that is a telltale sign that any thinking biblicist would know this person cannot possibly be the Messiah. And that, of course, is described in Revelation 13. We studied it previously. Let me read Revelation 13 and verse 14 to you. And he deceives those. He's talking about this false prophet. John the Baptist pointed people to Jesus. The false prophet will point people to the Antichrist. He's also called a beast, not to be confused with the first beast. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, the presence of the Antichrist, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And so we studied this miracle that happens. The Antichrist will literally die He won't be resurrected like Christ because Jesus was brought out of the grave in a resurrection body. He'll be raised to life like eight other people in Scripture, most famously Lazarus in most of our thinkings. But this will be Satan's finest hour. He will pull off this incredible miracle, and the world will turn and worship to him. But we also studied in the next verse, and it was given to him, this false prophet, to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He will desecrate this holy place by erecting an idol. And any Jewish person would immediately know this cannot possibly be the Messiah because God's will never contradicts God's word. And this is an idol in God. And the Decalogue said, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Their eyes will be opened. Now, up until this time, there'll be mass Jewish conversion. But those Jews who had not yet been converted, this will be the telltale event. Their eyes will be opened. This is a false Messiah. He is not our Lord because he never, ever would do this. So going back to our chart here, again, in the middle of this seven-year period is this event known as the abomination of desolation. Now, we've been studying the first half of the three and a half years 
these judgments that fall on the earth. But once this middle event takes place, again, it's a game changer because it's going to go from tribulation to great tribulation. Now, why would God have us to study these future events, especially since we won't be here? The church will have been taken out. Why would he have so much written in the New Testament, not just of the rapture, but of the second coming? Well, let me give you five reasons why Christians should study these events. Of course, all scripture is inspired by God. Every single word, it's God-breathed and it's profitable. So there's nothing that God writes about, whether it's a genealogy that may bore you to death or whatever it might be. It's all inspired and it's there for a reason. But one of the reasons I think God gave us is because he wants us to learn something about Satan and his evil intentions and purposes. Paul will write to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So in studying the tribulation and Satan's contribution to this time frame, we get a glimpse of what he's like. A good military leader will help his troops to know their enemy. Because when you know the enemy, you know how you can best approach him. And we've been learning how Satan absolutely hates Israel. And of course, it's going to be during this time, especially after the midpoint, that you're going to see a new expression of hatred. Look, it's not by accident that we've had the Hamans and the Hitlers of the world that since the inception of the Jewish nation via Abraham, they've been a persecuted people. There's never, ever, ever been a more hated people on the face of the earth than the sons and daughters of Abraham. The United Nations has written more resolutions against the nation of Israel than all of the nations in the world combined. And we just saw another one this past week that was absolutely disgusting. Satan hates the Jewish people. Jesus, in describing Satan and what he's like, he said he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. In other words, whenever he speaks, he speaks from his own nature, and it's that of a chronic liar. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He is a liar. He's the originator. He's the father of all lies. His motive is murder. His method is to lie, and we will see that so plainly this morning. Paul will tell the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 2.11 that he doesn't want us to be in the dark about Satan. Why? So that no advantage would be taken us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. We're not ignorant of his schemes, his methodia. We get our word, our methodologies. A second reason I think God would have us to study the tribulation is because it helps us to understand his holy hatred for sin. Uh, one of the reasons the church should read the Sermon on the Mount is because it opens your eyes up to how holy God is if you read the text carefully. The church will be dead and gone, but God's justice and holy, I mean, the church will be raptured and gone to heaven, but, but God's justice will be very prevalent during the time of the Great Tribulation. And uh, it's important that we understand that justice. Many times God will write of an event for a people who will never see it happen. Classic example, the prophet Isaiah. He writes about the Babylonian captivity in Isaiah 39. And it doesn't happen until almost 100 years later. Most of the people to whom he wrote and those who studied it were dead and gone. But there were principles 
about the Babylonian captivity when the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar would come down and crush the southern two tribes, Judah, comprised of Judah and Benjamin. There were principles about their sin that the people in Isaiah's day needed to understand that they might not be guilty of the same. A third reason God, I think, would have us to read this portion of Scripture is it's just a reminder that God works all things together for good. That things ultimately, the Scripture is clear, is not going to get better and better. They're going to get worse and worse. I remember when my wife and I brought home our little newborn, our firstborn from the hospital, and here we were with little Jeremy, and we were just kind of overwhelmed. There was like a news cycle that was going on that was just endless evil. And here you had this baby that, of course, we thought he was immaculately conceived. You know, that's the way you think about your little ones, that they don't even have a sin nature. And her grandmother reminded us, I'll never forget what Miss Maud Hill said. She said, Jesus said these days would come, that you're not to be frightened, for these things must take place. Now, that was over 40 years ago. And who would have imagined, I could not have imagined in my lifetime that I would see such an acceleration of evil upon the world. And so there's a fourth reason, I think. One, we recognize God is sovereign. He's working all things together for good, so we don't need to be frightened of the days that we're in. But a fourth reason for studying this is it gives us a sense of confidence to witness now. There's an urgency to witness now, do you remember Abraham? He was actually taken into the confidence of God. Why? Because he was a friend of God. What a great title. What a descriptive title that I hope, you know, you recognize you have because we are no longer God's enemies. The scripture says, Romans 10, we're God's friends. We've been reconciled to him. Jesus said, no longer do I call you slaves. I call you friends. We're friends of God, and so God takes us into his confidence, just as he took Abraham into his confidence over what he was going to do in Sodom. Listen to these words from Genesis 18. Then the Lord said, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So the Lord, Yahweh, and he comes on this occasion as the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord was the Lord Jesus. Before he ever took on our humanity, at times he would appear as the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. After the incarnation, you never, ever again see the angel of the Lord. And so should we let him in on what we're about to do? And of course, this revelation that God gave to Abraham led him to plead for the salvation of his nephew Lot and his loved ones. And when you understand, when God takes you into confidence over what he is planning to do in the future as it relates to the peoples of this world, it should move you to prayer and to an open lips to share the good news with people. All right? Now, to get the flow of thought of where we're going, uh, though we've already covered verses 15 to 21 in great depth, I want to begin by starting there and reading it. So follow along in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, come tonight to meet the pastor. Matthew 24, 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. 
Whoever is on the housetops must not go down to get the things out that are in the house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now, we've covered those verses. Look at verse 23 now. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christ or Messiahs, depending on your English Bible, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I've told you in advance. So if they say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now the context is critically important. And some of you have walked into this series fresh. So let me just dust off our minds and refresh us to where we are. Matthew chapters 24 and 25 take place on the Mount of Olivet. And of course, there's something that led up to this discussion. If you read chapters 22 and 23 of Matthew, Jesus is rebuking and confronting the religious leadership of Israel. They're called scribes and Pharisees. Sometimes they're just called Jews. The term Jews can be used in a broad way of all sons and daughters of Abraham or sometimes in a very specific way in the New Testament. John often does this, but not exclusively, of the leadership of Israel. And so he has just indicted the leaders of Israel with, as those who killed the prophets. And because of their hatred for the things of God, because they had become self-righteous like many Gentiles in the world today, Jesus said in verse 36 of chapter uh, 23, notice, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. All what things? The judgments that he has just spoken of because of their rejection and their persecution of the man of God, they are going to be judged by God. The temple of the Lord called the house of the Lord in the context is going to be destroyed and they're gonna be scattered across the planet. Your house, he said, is going to be left desolate, a reference to the temple. So here they are, these men, these godly men who had walked with Christ for three years. Jesus just said the temple is gonna be destroyed. And so, the crowd's gone, verse one. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away with his disciples and his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. Now Mark tells us specifically who those disciples were. Peter, James, John, and Andrew. So just four of the apostles at this point are with him. And of course, this was Tuesday before Friday. On Friday, that's Passover, he's gonna be crucified. This is Tuesday of the last week. And they're gonna ask him a question. 
And the answer Jesus gives is the single longest answer, at least recorded in scripture, to any question that's ever asked by his disciples. Further, Mark tells us that they were sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Some of you have been with us to Israel, and God willing, we're going in September of 2023. In fact, it just opened the registration. It's already a third full. But if you're on the Mount of Olives, you look down the Mount of Olives, that massive graveyard, and at the bottom is the Garden of Gethsemane, and then the Valley of Kidron, and then up, 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 and you see the Temple Mount where the Dome of the Rock is today. So here they are, they're sitting on the Mount of Olives and they see this magnificent temple. I mean, it's breathtaking. It's covered in silver and gold and copper and bronze and it has some of the finest masonry that has ever been used in the construction of a building. Verse two, Jesus picks up on what he had just said to the crowds. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Which prompts them to ask the question of verse 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? You'll notice they asked three questions, grammatically, technically two questions, but the second question has two parts to it. And so they say, first, tell us, when will these things happen? Referring to his prediction that the temple is going to be destroyed. That would be a huge event in their mind. Because the last time the temple was destroyed was under Solomon, when Nebuchadnezzar came down with the Babylonians. And it was nothing but a time of heartache that followed. So they're thinking, you're going to allow the temple to be destroyed? The place where we meet God, the place where we worship God? But they're also interested in a statement that Jesus made. He said of the Jewish people, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He said, I will not come back until they say, and he's quoting Psalm 118, until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, there are some people today, they call themselves supersessionists. They say the church has superseded Israel, that we're the new Israel. Popularly, it's called replacement theology. But Jesus was clear. His second coming cannot happen until the Jewish people say, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Jesus came in the name of Yahweh until they recognize that his second coming cannot take place. So that's the first question. And the second question logically follows. And what will be the sign of your coming? They're asking him, when will your enemies be crushed where you come and rule and reign in power and authority as the Old Testament prophets spoke of you? And so what does Jesus do? He looks down the corridors of time and he gives them a picture of what's going to precede his literal return to the earth. A number of signs, and we studied them very carefully in verses 4 through 14. Jesus calls them birth pangs. And they match the sealed judgment. Sometimes Christians almost sloppily say, well, we're seeing the birth pangs today. We are not. Jesus is clear, and you know it as you let Scripture interpret Scripture, that what we're seeing today are not the birth pangs. Now, what we're seeing today is important. Why is it important? Because to have birth pangs... For a woman to go in labor, you have to have a pregnancy. <laughs> and so the, the pregnancy is here. In fact, I think it's almost full term. 
But Jesus is clear in verse 8 that what unfolds in the first half of the tribulation is only the beginning of the birth pangs. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 021. Don't forget that you can also download the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Just type Search the Scriptures and look for the blue icon with the white triangle. On the app, you can download messages to listen to anytime, anywhere. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.